I think reality does bite. But I think what I see around me that's really pervasive in our culture, which is what I call magical thinking, a term I have borrowed, is even worse. Let's look at reality. Let's bring you some content that is meaningful, truthful, as much as we don't want to face it and address these issues because there is a solution for everything. There's no magic. Everything is hard work, but there is a solution. And we're hoping that this show brings you some of that content so you can make better, well-informed decisions and have an understanding of how addiction fits into our social milieu and what we can all do about it together as a culture, as a nation, as a society. Good afternoon. Uh, today we're gonna, we have actually a special guest here today. Uh, we have Dave Duranian. Him and I have been meaning to make this podcast for some time, and we are basically going to uh, interview him and his life story, which is very relevant to the bigger picture that we're trying to build on here, the conceptual framework that we're trying to sell to you guys, and uh, it's the following, and I always repeat this. Uh, we do know that addiction as a medical model for disease works in evaluation, treatment, and answering questions, and getting us to the outcome that we want. Uh, I have always argued that it's just as important to look at addiction in terms of a social pathology, a symptom of a social pathology. Uh, I'm not smart enough to write a book on this, but what I would like to do is to build on that theme. And the reason I think this is really important, I'm going to make an analogy here. We know that diabetes is a medical disease, and the medical model of the disease works for us. You give medication, and then there's changes in the body, and the patient's outcome improves. But just as important, we cannot treat diabetes unless if we look at it as a social disease. If you have one particular culture, in particular, let's talk about diabetes type 2. If you have one particular culture, and let's say, let's take an extreme example. They are just inhaling basic toxic sugars, it's gonna have your diabetes type two explode as it has in the United States. The age keeps getting younger and younger. And therefore that's a social issue. That's an environmental issue. And until we can address that, we can't talk about prevention, short-term or long-term treatment in the most effective way. I have the same position on addiction, okay? And part of that uh, is that, uh, to put it in very succinctly and, and briefly, is that addiction, as much as it is a medical disease that can be treated, it is, more importantly almost, a social disease. It is a symptom of a greater social pathology. To that end, one of those things I'd like to look at is individual lives and how they're couched in a social and cultural milieu that I believe feeds into addiction and Dave Duranian, I'm really excited about this, he's here with us today, uh, is sort of part of that evaluation to get you to see that way. Uh, this is Dr. B. This show is called Reality Bites with Dr. B. And we are going to begin our interview with Dave. Hi, Dave. How are you? Hi, Dr. B. Thank you for uh, bringing me on here. Yeah, I'm kind of excited. We've been meaning to do this for a while, huh? Correct. Okay. So uh, just a little background with Dave. Uh, Dave and I work together, and in fact, he's a drug and alcohol counselor, and he's a fantastic drug and alcohol counselor. He's uh, actually one of our lead guys at our nonprofit that we work at, and uh, he has a fantastic story. Uh, 
Why don't you uh, actually tell us a little bit, you know, this, I'll give a little background. Dave spent, uh, I think, a total of about 20 years Correct. behind bars, state prison. State prison, uh, been in and out of juvenile halls, uh, juvenile hall camps, um, placements, different things like that, county jails, and did a long stint in prison. What was the longest? Uh, the longest was 18 and a half years. Okay. Tell me, about, uh, if you don't mind, and if there's something you don't feel comfortable talking about, Dave, that's completely okay. Uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood, your youth, where you're from, and we'll, I'll take lead from that and kind of guide our uh, discussion here. Well, okay, so I was uh, pretty much born and raised in Norwalk. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, which was like a That's Los of... Angeles, right? Sorry. Correct. Okay. It's in Nor Los Angeles County, and uh, my parents both came down from Fresno. My dad left when I was six months old and left my mother with my older brother and me. Um, we were in a, um, a Chicano area, basically, uh, the rural poor neighborhood. Um, we grew up where my mother did try her hardest, but she struggled with her own mental illness. Um, she had her own addiction on top of it. Um, I was pretty used to that, that lifestyle. I thought this was just normal for me. Um, also, I was had spinal meningitis when I was a baby. Um, that's I, it caused me to have be hard of hearing, which I had to teach speech therapy for 12 years. Uh, but I grew up in an environment where the alcohol was was very common in the house. Um, a lot of abuse. My mom ended up remarrying somebody, my stepdad, Greg, and uh, it was a lot of abuse, a lot of physical abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, my stepdad, he was a, he was a tough guy. Um, you know, he'd been in and out of Hawaii, and to prisons and stuff, and he was very emotional, physical, abusive towards me. You know, due to me not being able to hear, he used to keep me up late at night to make sure I can talk properly. Um, I was one of those perfectionists, um, but constantly alcohol was always contributing in the house. But there was nights when I would get woke up, getting beaten. Um, I had two younger brothers from he had with my mother, and uh, there was six of us, but then my stepdad disappeared. He took off. You know, there was, the, the abuse got really bad. I started running the streets at a young age. How old? I was probably like around seven to eight years old. Let me slow you down a little bit. So for, originally you were in Fresno. At what age did you... Well, my parents were from Fresno. When they came down to Norwalk, that's when they had me. Okay. And what kind of a neighborhood were you in in Norwalk? Was it... Uh, it's a middle... gangbang and it's like cholos Gang... and stuff like that. Okay. So they came to Norwalk. They had you. Did you know your original father? No, I did not. I did not. I didn't meet my original father until I was like probably 35 years old. Okay. So he left. Your mom remarried. Correct. There was no other siblings from your original no, father? No, nothing. It was nothing. Uh, they didn't want nothing to do with my mom due to her drinking. So the no uh, neighborhood you grew up originally was uh, kind of a gang-banging neighborhood? It was a poor neighborhood. Poor Very, neighborhood. It was, houses were connected to each other. Um, government cheese, free Christmas trees. We didn't have much. We got paid on the 1st and the 15th. I remember as a little kid, you know, going paying for the rent with a welfare check. Um, but my mother was constantly drinking. She was just drinking every day. Was there mental health issues, you yes, said? Yes. Later on, I figured it out, yes. As I got older, I understood. And she got married early on. Correct. And there was how many other siblings? There was two more that came, so it was six of us total. You started running the streets around what age? And tell me what you mean by running the streets. Running the streets, you know, when my mother was drinking, she had no concept of us being gone. So, you know, there wasn't much food in the house, so I used to hustle on the streets. Um, I learned at a young age to have some, some um, odd behaviors. You know, I would get an Easter basket and I'd go door to door and collect money from the church when there was no church so I could feed me and my brothers. How old were you when you were doing that? It was probably like eight, around the same time, eight o'clock, eight, eight years old. It was just constantly like that. But I did that for years like that, different styles, you know, 
jogathons, marathons, you know, um, whatever it was to take make sure I had food in my stomach, my brothers. Your mom was married at this time? Her and my stepdad had already started splitting up again. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of physical. In the house? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My stepdad ended up moving uh, to Gardena. And that's in Los Angeles as well for Correct. those that are not local? Correct. Okay. And so, and so all the siblings were younger than you, huh? My oldest brother, John, was the oldest. Um, I was the second child. The two younger ones, Matt and Gregory, were the younger ones. Okay. How was school going? And was there a, And tell me about the hearing because that... Cause and you had that as a baby. Now I do know that if someone something like that happens, it's critical to catch. And because the cognitive development and normal learning behavior, and this is all well documented uh, in the, uh, the child development, psychology, physiology literature, is critical to catch that early, so the child can have an appropriate cognitive development. In addition, I, th I think one thing we should really point out and. Uh, those that suffer from these kinds of things know there's also a huge psychological and emotional impact when you have something like this going on, right? Because the kid might be Einstein, right? But because there is a physical barrier to normal learning and normal processing and normal memory building, they will start to feel crappy about themselves. Can you speak a little bit to that? Tell me how school was going on early, uh, going for you early on. Uh, you were talking a little bit about how your stepdad at home would keep you up at nights and trying Correct. to... Correct. Tell me a little more about that and give, give, so, give us a little detail. Make us really understand and So, you know, the reality was I enjoyed school a lot. I went to a special ed school in Long Beach. They would pick me up from uh, Norwalk in, um, in a bus, and I enjoyed school because I was, felt like it was my safe place. Um, my special ed teacher was very loving, kind, um, gave me a lot of attention, um, I just, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. This was elementary school? This was, it was, yes. It was uh, all through kindergarten all the way up to like 10th grade. Okay. I did a, a special ed school to learn to speak because I couldn't talk. Okay. I had to do speech therapy for all those years. And you enjoyed it, huh? That was your safe place? It was my safe place. Really? Yeah. And you've told me before when you were young, you wanted to be a teacher. Correct. Because I idolized them because they treated me well. Um, I'd never been treated like that, the way they treated me, with love, kindness. Um, what was going on at home, Dave? Just, um, you know, be honest with you, it was just a lot of uh, confusion, a lot of confusion, um, chaos. Uh, didn't, nothing was stable. Nothing, it was unexpected. You didn't know what was going to happen the next minute. Um, my stepdad, when he did come over once in a while, he would, um, you didn't know what, to predict his behavior. Uh, come to find out later on, he was schizophrenic. And uh, didn't know if I was going to get hit with a shoe or if I was going to get beat up. Um, I've gotten shot with a BB gun by him a few times when I was a kid. Uh, didn't know if there was going to be food there. Um, my oddest time that I remember is when I, I came home from baseball practice and nobody was there. And they disappeared. I was probably like about 9 to 10. Tell us about that. They, I would come home and from baseball practice, and basically they would disappear. The, all of the whole family would take off for the weekend to go motorcycle riding or camping or somewhere, and I would stay at the house by myself for the weekend. Did they forget you, or just there was so much chaos? You know what? I couldn't put too much thought into it. Be honest with you. It, at first, it was, it was a little bit of fear for me, but then it's then after a while, it was for me. It was being safer. I was at least I wasn't going to get harmed. You know, I knew how to hustle for food. I knew how to make money. You know, I would clean people's yards. I did a lot of sorts of different things. 
you know, to make sure I feel, but the fact no one was there, I felt safe. Did you, and, and just so you know, I do want to know details. I think the viewers do want to know details. Mm -hmm. You don't need to gloss over it. Whatever you're comfortable with, I do want you to feel comfortable and open up. I want to know details because eventually all of this will make sense and give us a framework to move forward as myself as a physician and I hope uh, us as a society and the viewers have a deeper understanding because I am going somewhere with this in the long run. Um, when did you... Did you start? Did you start having any legal pro problems with the law, or? Uh, yes, I started having legal problems probably when I was uh, 13 years old. Can you tell me a little bit? Um, basically, I was stealing out of you know, grocery stores. Um, I got arrested for that. I broke into a school. Um, sorts. Of, I had a lot of anger issues too. Um, there was a lot of sorts of things going on with me. Uh, the anger was pretty bad. Uh, but just constantly trying to survive just to have food in my stomach. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Most of your criminal deviant behavior was really to, for survival mechanisms, or at least early on. Correct. I mean, and I don't want to put thoughts in your mind, uh, but I do want to help you formulate whatever you're saying because this is actually, you know, it's a, it might not be the most comfortable form, and it's cool of you to share with us. Would that be correct then? It would be correct. It would be correct. It was also, too, at the same time, um, I didn't get much attention at home. So some attention is better than no attention. Um, I kind of got excited doing some of these things. I really did. You know, doing the uh, things that, you know, people didn't catch me for. I really did. You know, I got away. But, you know, when I got caught, it was like I would go to juvenile hall and I got fed. I ate good. At least I was safe there. I had somewhere to sleep. And I find it really interesting about the safety of being at school and mm -hmm. feeling appreciated Correct. and feeling that there was hope. Tell me, how long did, did that continue on throughout the, uh, the whole time you were in school? Yes, it did. It did. Um, until I got to high school, it kind of changed a little bit. Um, I personally think it's when I started changing in my life, um, things got really out of hand. Um, I started acting out a lot more. In and high it, school? Yeah, and I started getting... Uh, started getting caught for things. Used to get away with things, so I started getting caught. Um, I got kicked out of my high school. It was very embarrassing. Um, that's when I was sent to juvenile camp. I broke into someone's house and stayed there for two weeks. Why did you do that? Uh, they were on vacation. Yeah. And did you do it by yourself? Uh, a friend of mine did it with me. And what were you guys thinking? Why, why did you? I'm trying to really get into the in your mind, you know, what, what was going on? What relief were you looking for? What gain were you looking for? Uh, you know, uh, just something to do? Uh, was it exciting? Was, was it some food? It was, a, it was a combination of things. It was exciting. It was also, um, you know, I, I didn't just break into a, someone's poor house. I, I went to La Mirada in Los Angeles and broke into someone's rich home. And uh, I robbed their whole house. I did. I took a lot of, and I called a lot of the friends from the neighborhood, the ones that used to beat me up all the time, just to get some attention from them, like validate me. Yeah. And that didn't work out. Why not? Well, because they had their own addiction. I didn't understand that at the time. They had their own addiction, but it was basically they just took advantage of me, and I, I was naive as a child. How old were you? I was uh, 14 on that one. Tell me when substances started coming in. Substance was before that. Substance started maybe around, um, my stepdad gave me my first uh, alcohol when I was like seven years old and was on Thanksgiving. And what happened was it was all me and my brothers and my mom sitting at the table, and uh, which was rare. Uh, my stepdad had told me and my brothers if we wanted a drink of wine. We made a glass of wine, each one, every one of us. And uh, 
my two brothers puked, and I didn't puke. My dad was really proud of me. You know what I mean? So I was like, I can do it again, and he gave me another one. Did you feel validated? I felt validated. Oh, yeah. I felt accepted for once. You know, if any type of way I felt like I got an acceptance, it, was, it, made, me, it made my day, you know, for the momentarily. Yeah, didn't last long. Tell me how that escalated in terms of substances, including tobacco. So uh, my substance, uh, I always tried a lot of things. Like I smoked pot, I smoked sherm, PCP. Mm-hmm. I did cocaine, I did methamphetamine. Um, I even got uh, arrested for sniffing uh, whiteout. This is in your, what, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, From 11 to 14. Okay, keep going. And when I was 14, um, and I used to take care of my mother when my stepdad wasn't around. I was the fixer. I made sure my mom didn't, you know, something happened negative to her. You know, uh, when I was a little kid, I'd wait at bars at 2 o'clock in the morning, wait for her to come out. Really? And, yeah. In Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah. And then you'd take her home? I'd make sure she got home safe. You know, I just that's just what my routine was. But when I was 14, I did this all for years, but when I was 14, she sobered up. She uh, almost died, and uh, I got called at school. I went to visit her, and when I went to visit her, my heart broke because I seen her hooked up all those tubes, and it really scared me. You know, I was I'm a kid, and uh, she sobered up. And from that point on, when she sobered up, she really didn't need my help no more. How so, interesting. Yeah, because I've always been the you know save my mom, save my mom, and she didn't need my help. That's where my addiction kicked in. That's where I started drinking and using more, and then got introduced to crystal methamphetamine. And I started doing crystal meth. How were you doing it? Smoking it? I started off smoking it, snorting it. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, I ended up uh, IV using it. Okay, so meth was sort of the first hard drug, mm-hmm. if, if I understand correctly, around 14 that started escalating. And it was when your mother sobered up, ironically. Correct. And she went back to school. She started getting her life together. And um, moved to a middle class, like middle class. She got out, we got out of the neighborhood. Was she still with your stepdad? She is. No, she's with my, um, her new boyfriend. At that time? Correct. So I'll add my interpretation here without imposing it and having Dave agree with me. You know, I think those first formative years are so important. And part of my thesis, which is not really my thesis, I'm borrowing from a lot of smarter guys than me. Well, number one, those first few years are so formative. Our development is so critical they need, and you can show this, and it has been shown if you look at hormones released in the body all the way, well, actually before birth. But again, those first few years are so critical and so formative that dysfunction, any dysfunction, so much for dysfunction to this extent, can really, really destroy. I don't want to say destroy. I want to say can really lead to a potential for disaster and social dysfunction and individual dysfunction. And I think it's interesting uh, because Dave here, uh, his safe place was at school. And that nurturing feeling, that safety feeling, that warmth. And if you folks pay close attention, this is very analogous to when I describe somebody using opiates or any drugs. He was getting that nurturing safety feeling Instead of getting it where he's supposed to get it at home, he was getting it at school. And a sense of well-being validation as a young human being coming up and starting to realize his own existential place in the world, whatever that means, but there has to be some security in that. 
it was taken away from him. And ironically, it was his mother sobering up. But now he's 14. And he is in a potentially dangerous situation. That's my take on it. I, I don't look at you when I tell you that, Dave, only because I don't want to impose my interpretation on you. I want you to give us your interpretation of whatever is going on. So, uh, okay, so at 14 and then in high school, you said things started to go a little That's bit off. Correct. Tell us more. And again, the more details, um, the better I that. So like around 14 years old, I was breaking into people's cars, uh, feeding my addiction, breaking into people's houses to feed my addiction. It wasn't eating. It was mainly um, breaking into people's houses to get the meth. Correct. Addiction. Correct. And I hung around a lot of guys under the bridge. I lived under the bridge, too, at that time. You weren't living at home? Not no more. I just I decided to take off, and I just I was living under the 605 freeway in Norwalk, Los Angeles, California. Um, it's by choice. It was my own choice. I just wanted to um, have fun and just get away from all the, the chaos. At know? home. Correct. So even though she had sobered up, there was still a lot of chaos at home, huh? Well, the problem was, yeah, the problem was she, she wanted to start putting structure in my life. And it was a little too late. Exactly, exactly. And I felt like, no, this isn't okay with me. You know what I mean? I, you, wasn't, I wasn't okay with that. Were you still going to school at that time? Uh, yes, I was. I was. So she you, got with a new boyfriend at that time, the 14-year, when I was 14. Okay, and you were, so you moved out and were homeless? Correct. And you were stealing to feed yourself and uh, take care of your needs? Correct. Okay, go on. And so basically, I just, you know, I, I was really lost at that time. Um... I was going through like a puberty change. I do know that uh, a lot of mixed emotion feelings. I, everything was just confusing for me. Uh, I would still show up to school, but I also worked at a pool hall place during the nighttime, uh -huh. um, cleaning tables. It was called Varsity Billiards. Varsity Billiards. Billiards. Okay. It's a pool hall place, and I would stay there until like one in the morning cleaning up the tables. And sometimes this lady that owned the place would let me stay at her house for overnight and shower, and she would take me to school, drop me off at school. I was still doing methamphetamine, going to school, breaking into people's houses, uh, working at the place. Um, but I was always looking for validation from older guys, older girls. A lot of people hung out with like heavy metalers, punk rock music. Um, just got involved with the wrong people. Tell us what the next turning event was. Uh, next, I get but to. By the way, when did the opiates come in? Opiates came later on in prison. Okay. All right. So we're not there yet. Mm -mm. Uh, so it's mainly meth, alcohol, and weed right now? Correct. And PCP. I was smoking PCP How a lot. often were you doing that? I would do that once every, like, month. You know, my friends would get a hold of some. We'd be doing it. Okay. Were you involved in any gangs? Um, you know what? Um, no, I wasn't involved, but I was in. What I mean by that is I grew up in the neighborhood, so I participated in a lot of the events that they did. Right. Okay. So you knew them, and they were, I don't know, associates in some ways. So. We grew up together, so we yeah. knew each other as kids with regular names, not nicknames. How come you never got into gangs? Uh, because I was always bouncing everywhere. I was never, there was no stability. I was always bouncing like from one area to another area to another. I was never comfortable being in one spot. I didn't want people to know who I really was. <clears throat> so you were going through, through high school, go on with your own narrative. My next turning point was um, when I broke into someone's house. That's the one I stayed in for two weeks that I told you about. Yeah. Uh, I eventually went to court in you know, Los Padrinos and they sentenced me to juvenile camp. And I went out there, and that was probably the first time in my life I started putting some weight on. Uh, probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me was getting arrested and put in juvenile camp. Uh, I went out there, and uh, I was on a routine. I had a structure of my life. I was told exactly what to do every move. And uh, for some reason, I felt like they loved me. 
you know, there was some positive structure, you know, I was working in the kitchen, um, making food for people, and, and I really had a routine where I'd go to sleep at a certain time, go to school. Everything was going beautiful, and I loved it. I stayed there for nine months. Really? Yeah. It was it was interesting. I really enjoyed it. I did. I used to jog the mountains. They had us jogging the mountains for, like, tracks and stuff, and I was very competitive. I eventually got to work in the city of Saugus, and I would go to the parks and clean up their trash and stuff like that. Really? Yeah. It's uh, Saugus, for those of, that's another Los Angeles suburb. San Fernando Valley. Yeah, San Fernando, actually. Yeah, but, you know, the suburbs. Uh, and that lasted for nine months. How was your relationship with mom and everyone at home during that time? Um, it, it was pretty distant. It was disconnected. It was very disconnected. Um, it was distant. Um, I really didn't associate too much with any of them except for my uh, my brothers. I, I did associate with my brothers as much as possible. Okay. They went through the same struggles as I did. They did? Yeah. They had just different ways of, of dealing with it. You know, a couple more gangbangers into gangs. So it's a little different. What happened after the nine months and how old were you? I got out. It was at the time I was getting out, it was close to 16. Okay. I got out and I worked. I got a job at McDonald's, my first job. Cool. Yeah, I was uh, flipping patties and I was thinking to myself, wow, this is interesting, flipping patties. I remember flipping over like 100 patties at a time, but I got bored with that type of routine job at McDonald's and I uh, started hanging around the wrong people again. So were you back in school? I, I had to go back to school. Um, I was getting ready to, uh, I only had a little bit more credits to do. Were you living at home? Um, yes, I was. Okay. Back to school, living at home, you had a job at McDonald's, but you got bored with it. I got bored. I got bored with it, and I started uh, hanging around with the wrong people, the, the girls. I started hanging around with the other females, uh, living at their houses. I eventually started living at their house, uh, just just doing my, I was doing my own thing. I was doing my own thing, and uh, I was on probation at the time, but I continued to start using drugs and alcohol again feed my uh, addiction. I started feeding my body, but once I did that, things went bad again. Tell me why you did that, do you think? If you, if you had to explain it on retrospect, and if you had to give an insightful but rational, honest, if you were before God today, mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, you, it sound, sounds like that camp, which is interesting, because believe it or not, all children are looking for structure. They're looking for stability. They're looking for validation and opportunity to grow. It seems like that camp, although it's many years later now, not when you're one, two, three, four, five, gave you that, gave you a sense of that. But something afterwards, and this might be because now there's so much dysfunction built into your psyche in those most important formative years, it's almost a knee-jerk reflex to Correct. go back unless someone comes in and really guides the shit out of you. You tell me what, what you know. Why go back to the drugs and alcohol? Well, why well, go back to the drugs and alcohol? So I had a lot of unresolved issues mm -hmm. they've never dealt with. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, an, in a time when you didn't express your emotions, feelings. You didn't express, you know, what was going on with you. You weren't allowed to. But inside me, I just didn't feel comfortable in my own body. I would prefer to be not have to feel, and that's why I drank and used. You know, it was easier for me to deal with life on life's terms that way at the time. That's all I knew how to do it. Um, you have to remember also, too, I lost my role when I was 14 years old. When my mother sobered up. What, that, that was the role. And what an interesting role to have up to the age of 14, mm -hmm. taking care of your mother after she left bars. Correct. All sorts of different areas, too, that I took care of her. You know, I was very close to my mother, too. I was very close to my mom. But so when she sobered up... And she got with her new boyfriend that kind of separated me from her. 
and he was very jealous of me, and he would act out on me when my mom wasn't around. He'd come and beat the hell out of me when I was asleep. He constantly did. That's why I moved out. That's why I moved out originally. Okay. So you're back at home. You don't like the McDonald's job. You are back in school. You start doing alcohol. You start doing the methamphetamines again. There's females in your life. Please continue uh, wherever you want to go with that. So basically, that's when I started uh, getting into the IV. I started slamming methamphetamine. Uh, methamphetamine was different then. Uh, I started losing my mind. I was wandering the streets all over, lost for days. We were just uh, slam a bunch of issue of meth. Uh, be lost for days and confused. Uh, didn't know I was having that psychosis then, as we know it now, as psychosis. Mm -hmm. I had probably a good 20 psychosis, just didn't realize it. One time I'm walking around the neighborhood, I, I was at some girl's house and we did some uh, methamphetamine. I walked around Norwalk and Bellflower for two days. I lost where the girl lived. I grew up with the girl and I didn't know where she lived no more. That's the psychosis I was having. And I had a Del Taco food in my hand and I walked for two days, and I brought the food finally after finding the house for two days. Yeah. Wow. I was, I was gone. I was lost. Yeah. Were you back in school at this time? No, I was, it was hit and miss. I was basically showing up when I wanted to show up. Mm -hmm. it, it was just getting, it was getting, bad. It was any, getting real bad. Any intervention from mom or No, family? no. The interventions that they would give is just stop, just quit, just like I did. That was their type of intervention was just basically quit. You know, uh, my mom's boyfriend uh, tried to make me quit behind different reasons. And like, you know, I, I got, it was like punitive uh, damage for me. It wasn't therapeutic, it was punitive. Correct. Okay. It didn't work well with me. Okay. How was your probation going at this time? Probation, I was disappearing um, from my probation officer. You know, um, at that time, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have, it was different, you know. It was a hard find. It was, yeah, catch me when you can. Yeah. You know, so I need to disappear. <laughs> There's so much here, and I, and I wish we had hours, and maybe in the future we can revisit all of this, start from the beginning, go into much more depth. We're only on 20% of it, uh, by the way. We're not even on that, to be yeah, honest with you. Know. We're probably on 5% of it. Uh, we're probably on 3% of it because I want so much more, and I think if we keep doing this, we can get so much more out of this. And, and as important and instructive as your personal story is, I think this can be framed in a bigger picture of our social pathology. Um, but uh, okay, so uh, between 16 and 18. So this is around 16. Uh, you're doing a lot of methamphetamines. You've had multiple bouts of psychosis. I presume you're stealing again? Oh yes, definitely. Okay. Uh, definitely. There's alcohol involved, there's females involved, schools hit and miss. Uh, tell me about, about between 16 and 18. 16 to 18, basically I was, uh, Back into the bridge in 605, uh, I was going to another pool hall, which was called Hard Times, and these guys were more high rollers, and, and they were dealing with more like pounds of meth, and, and they were heavy hitters. So I got connected with them, and I started running dope for them. I would uh, go on the streets, and basically, they would send me an address where to take it to, and I would deliver a half pound, pound at a time. Uh, well, I would did, you get money for it or yeah, drugs? Yeah, I would get, well, actually, I would get, um, usually I'd get some dope for it and, and a couple of nights for the room, the motel. I stayed in a lot of motels, too, in between. Okay. And then, uh, and then, and then what was the next significant thing that happened? Next you significant know? thing is I broke into, um, when they closed down. Okay. I thought it would help them move it out while they were there. My mother lived across the street, and uh, I seen, you know, that they were closing it down, so when they all left... 
I thought I would go over there, and I was so skinny, I could fit through the bars. They had bars on top. It was like a bricks, and it was bars. And I was so skinny, I can get through it, and I did. And I stayed, I went in and out through three nights in a row, helping them get rid of their stuff. I was getting gas chainsaws. I was able to throw way over the thing. And Were I, you selling this stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I probably made about close to 5000 hmm. Yeah. Me and my little brother. He would be on the other side. I would throw it over. So the fourth night I'm over there, and I'd been up the whole time. I finally fell asleep for a little bit, but I went back over there, and I seen sirens. I was like, whoa, I'm tripping. I'm, I'm seeing things. I wasn't seeing things or hearing things. They were actually out there. It was the cops. And... Uh, Builders Emporium had the cash register. It was like kind of like a, a big little house where you can go inside, and I hid under there. And I heard about three hours later. I heard, "Come on out, we're sending the canines in." Oh man, this is not good. They let the canines in and they chewed me up. So I went back to jail again. My arms all tore up. My butt cheeks all tore up. How old were you? Seventeen. Seventeen. Mm -hmm. So I basically now I'm back in um, juvenile hall getting ready to go back to camp again, go back through camp again. And uh, this camp was a little different. It was hardcore. It was like a lot of gangbangers and stuff. The first one I went was more like uh, lost kids. This one was more like repeated offenders. So it was a lot, a lot of negative stuff happening there. It was a lockdown. You weren't going nowhere. Uh, I had to stay there for nine months until I turned close, until I turned 18. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that experience, was it as positive as your first no camp way. experience? No. Camp Rocky, no. Was it more threatening? Was it more work? Was it was it a lot more gangbangers in there, and it was uh, it wasn't as structured. And why does that make it more... Give me a little detail about the negative aspects of that. Well, there was a lot more drugs and alcohol, and they were making Perno, smoking a lot of weed, doing a lot of... At that time, there was a lot of crack going on, which we called a freebase. Yeah. There was a lot of freebase going on at that time in the uh, 87, and uh, that's what it was. Okay. And so so you, you actually, did that perpetuate your substance abuse in there? Of course. Of course. Oh, yeah, it did. I was happy about that part. Yeah. I, I, again, I don't want to feel, okay? I don't want to feel what I feel inside, like I'm not loved, like I'm not accepted. I don't want to feel that. I don't. You know, at that time, I didn't want to feel it. I'd rather be numb than have to feel that. Let me ask you this. Does anybody want to feel that? Is it, is it abnormal for you not to? I would argue, and I think, again, a lot of people much smarter than me that work in these areas, you're saying, I don't want to feel that. And somehow that's, it almost comes across as something negative as you, uh, uh, on you where, well, you know, I don't have the courage to feel that. I'm going to tell you something right now. Nobody wants to feel that. An appropriate human development in the right social context, the goal is for you, me, Odie, nobody to feel that. Right. But this is the difference, what I see. Okay, so then I didn't want to have to feel what I had to feel then. Today, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Well, you've had to actually... But the, it's, there's not much stuff going on in my life. There isn't that the negativity going on in my life. You know, my life is pretty normal compared to what it was then. This is all I knew. Well, we got 25 years later, a lot of bullshit in between, and you having to spend your whole life coming to the terms with the fact that, hey, all of that crap was abnormal, yeah. and it was it was dysfunctional development, mm -hmm. and you spent your whole life fixing that, and now you're just coping with it. Mm -hmm. When the way, the way I look at it is, here's a guy that I know really well. I actually have a good insight into his soul, and this is an amazing human being, 
and he's a smart human being. And what if we everything would have gone right from the beginning? What if our social environment had some sort of supportive structure for any kind of dysfunction going on where we as parents, we as individuals have failed, it absorbed him, did the right thing, how much money would the system have saved? How much trauma would have not been dished out to this individual who has the same God-given right as everybody else? And here we are 20, 25 years later. Continue. So uh, you were in there, and then you came out, and then and then you I, came out, huh? What yeah, when I came out, I was uh, already back doing what I normally do, but I did get a job. At, I was uh, working. Did you at, move home? Yes, I did move huh. home. I was working at and uh, um, basically I was working there for a while and I moved out maybe about three weeks later because I got into my mom's boyfriend again. We got in a fist fight. Uh-huh. Uh, very, again, he woke me up in the middle of the night while I was asleep um, trying to choke me. Um, my mom did not know about it. Uh, I, eventually I left again, but I was working at and I basically started living in motels. I became a manager. Um, I became a supervisor, general manager after a couple more months of that. Um, I, I, everything I've always worked, I've always became like a manager. I was going to say, it just shows how what a uh, capable, smart young man you were even back then because you could hustle pretty damn well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You could figure out to do things in a way that made it work and functional. You go to work at a motel, you go to work at and you do, it doesn't seem like there's any problems at work uh, and you could have done really well. Mm-hmm. So you became a manager, you moved became in. became a manager, then um, my uh, criminal mind started thinking. Um, I started doing uh, gigs out of I would have uh, people come over and uh, party and over there at their clothes, and I was running parties. Then I started getting bright ideas where I was charging everybody, you know, when they buy their food, I only ring up so much. So I was making like 300 to $400 a night each night. And what happened from there? Tell us this couple of years. This couple of years, basically, it was just a lot of blur. Um, that's when I eventually, um, I caught my uh, original case where I went to prison for all those years. Um, my mom's boyfriend and I got into it and uh, it was it was a lot of chaos. Uh, and him and uh, and I'm assuming you assaulted him. Correct. Okay. And it was pretty hardcore. Correct. Okay. I don't remember it. Okay. I don't remember nothing. All I remember is. Uh, was it methamphetamines? Yeah. But uh, I, all I remember is in, just seeing red. Um, the next day, all I remember is I, I called my girlfriend. I had a girlfriend named Diane at the time. I just had pants on. I was in the railroad tracks, and I went to Albertsons, and I was on the payphone, and I was calling her, and uh, she answered. I was like, what happened to me? I don't know what happened. I just have pants, nothing else. I'm in the railroad tracks, but it's rocks. I got cuts all over my feet. I got blood everywhere on me. I don't know nothing. And uh, she told me to meet her at the bowling alley. She was going to bring me some clothes. Okay. Which was Keystone Bowling Alley in Norwalk, California. Okay. And uh, so I went there, like, just pants on. People are, like, looking at me like, whoa. And she's there, but she has no clothes. I see the cops right there. And I see my mom's boyfriend right there, my boyfriend, but the, the cops over here, and I bailed, and I got away, and I took off, and I, it was pretty fast. Did you understand how serious the charges that were going to be uh, levied against you? Yeah, I did later on. I, no, I, at, at that, that time, time, did you know what the heck was going on? I didn't care. I just wanted to get high. Seems like there was a lot of drugs involved. There was a lot of drugs. Oh, yeah, there was deep, a lot of drugs. I didn't care. I just wanted, my priority was that drug. That was my priority. I didn't care about the severity of anything. I just, I knew the minute they arrested me, I was gonna have no drugs. 
So on all of this insanity, so I, I presume, and again, uh, to, to the extent you're comfortable, it was pretty violent what you uh, uh, unleashed on your step, uh, your mother's boyfriend, huh? Correct, my mother's boyfriend. A lot of, uh, it was pretty violent, huh? Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, afterwards, uh, I, I don't know if you knew you were going to be, I mean, I guess you didn't even think about it, huh? No, everything was an impulse back then. For me, everything was an impulse. Basically, I was just a survival for the meth. I wanted to get more meth. That's all I cared about at the time. I just wanted to get high. I didn't want to have to feel. I didn't want to have to feel. And at that time, I really wanted to die. I really didn't care about living. I didn't care about living at that time. Mm -mm. I didn't care about living. I had so much stuff inside me that I, you know, I never dealt with. When I look back at it now, sad. You know, there was nothing back then, just, you know, to therapy, you know, it was none of that, you know, especially if you were poor. That was the, and I had a, I had a thing against rich people at that time. You know, rich people got taken care of, you know, me, no. So my family didn't have much money, so it was nothing, no resources for us. I'm going to argue with you that you didn't have anything against rich people. I'm, I'm going to argue that you were in certain set of circumstances and you were looking for an escape goal to unleash your anger. Correct. And, a, and, 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 a justification as to why I'm so screwed. Why am I in this situation? And it takes 25 years to have introspection and retrospection. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, obviously we're not having that. So it was like, it, it's their fault. I always blamed everybody. Come on, that's what, that's what I did best. That's what I've always done best, you know, blame. I've always, but I did blame the rich people when it wasn't them. But that was easier for me to do it that way. You know, because I was very poor. I was very poor growing up. You know, I, I, I envied people that had, a, you know, got their kid a car. I envied people that was able to go to college and parents paid for the college. I envied them, you know, and the thing is, is that it wasn't their fault. I look back at it, no, I was, I was looking for a reason to blame somebody else, you know. It's easier for me to do that than blame myself. So, Dave, what I want to do is, this is a fantastic story, and we are going to get into the point where you started another journey in your life okay uh, what I want to let I want to stop you for a second I want to let the viewer know a few things again I blame all of us as a society for this situation all of us and it, it's an indictment on our social structure I think that will declare itself as we do more of these but more importantly Dave is about to start a new journey on his life and it's 20 years behind bars and then there's a wonderful journey that he takes after that, which I think, uh, please don't quote me, recidivism now is about 65%. Here's a guy that actually spends 20 years behind bars and afterwards is a wonderful, wonderful story of personal redemption and, and coping with what's happened. That's how I look at it. A little bit about his prison journey, my, my personal views, uh, again, substance abuse is a symptom of our social pathology, as are many other symptoms, including, <coughs> uh, I feel, our prison industrial complex. We have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners. That's not normal. That's social pathology. If you look <coughs> at the prison system now, and I think Dave spent most of his time in state prison, uh, it, it, more so in the federal system, it is a form of neo-slavery for a workforce which most Americans, I don't think, understand. It is the most absolute expression 
of neoliberal economics that one can see. Uh, and it's, uh, it really takes it to a very, very grotesque, absurd extreme. It contributes, you know, but the prison system is basically a privatized work camp, completely uh, more and more so being encapsulated by uh, the corporate structures of our society. Everything from their productions, which you may not know, but everything from Victoria's Secret uh, to uh, Starbucks have a stake in this at guys that are working $28 a month producing for them. In addition, prisons themselves are more and more being uh, privatized. Everything from their commissary, everything from their letters, uh, and it's a dehumanizing experience which really contributes to the first part of Dave's life. And as Dave tells us more of the story, and I'm a little bit familiar with it, uh, uh, you're going to see uh, how all of this leads to whatever you want to call it, social isolation, existential angst, that need for validation, warmth, and security that he has been lacking since he was a young child, which really is analogous to what substance abuse does. We're going to cut it off short today. Uh, Dave, uh, we want to continue this. I just think there's so much here, uh, and I hope all of this makes sense for the reader, uh, for the uh, listener, and uh, those of you watching this on YouTube. Okay, so Dave, uh, uh, if you don't mind, we will continue this. That's There's fine. a lot to this story. I really look forward to it. And I think at the end of it, when we get to today, there's a lot of hope. Correct. Uh, there is. I want to thank you so much for sharing with us. Let's continue this next time. And uh, I think you're an amazing, wonderful human being. And there's so much that you can teach all of us about where we're at, where we're going, what really hope and faith and hard work means uh, in, in a very mechanized social system that does not contribute to, I think, substance abuse recovery and recovery as human beings. Thank you. Um, okay, Dave. Thank you, Thank you very, you much. very much. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. B with Reality Bites. Thank you so much for listening to us. Look for our continuation of this episode with Dave. Uh, please look in the description below if you want to listen to our other podcasts. They're just as informative and educational. Thank you again.